At this time, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors of the show today, Pamela and Seashaw. We are so grateful that you have chosen to sponsor our show. It means the world to us. We thank you deeply from the bottom of our hearts. We truly couldn't do this show without you. Southern Bramble is a Patreon-supported podcast. If you would like to see full, unedited video recordings of our podcast, ask listener questions, or be thanked by name on each episode, please support the show by subscribing at patreon.com backslash Southern Bramble. You're listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I'm Marshall, the Witch of Southern Light. And I'm Austin Bain X Bramble on Instagram. And today we have a very special guest with us. We have Craig Spencer of Witchcraft Unchained. Um, and we're going to be talking about something really interesting and wonderful today. Craig, how are you? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm a little nervous, but also very excited to be here. So thank you for having me. We're really excited to have you. Don't be nervous at all. I. It's <laughs> funny little icebreaker I get nervous before recording all of these even when it's just Austin and I it's almost like that anxiety of building up and getting to speak and um we always you know our patrons love the pre-show I think so which is why sometimes it's nice just to kind of like chat it up a little bit beforehand and and, and get it all out yeah sure well I would love to start off by you just telling us a little bit about yourself um I obviously hear an accent. You were telling us where you were before. Let, if you want to let us, uh, let our listeners know, um, where are you from? Tell us a bit about your life, about your craft. Hi, so I'm Craig Spencer. I'm the author of Aradia, a modern guide to Shazgoth for Leyland's Gospel of Witches. And I have an upcoming book next year called Witchcraft Unchained. Um, and I can't say too much on that, but as soon as I have details, I will let everybody know. Um, as you can tell, I do have an accent. I'm from Greater Manchester, uh, which is in the northwest of England. We are very um, a very diverse area. I think that's one of my favourite things about this area. And we're very foxy in many ways. Um, a lot of people would probably know things about Manchester without really knowing they do by a lot of the vocabulary used in modern witchcraft because a lot of it just started from our very forky accent up here where we keep a lot of very old English words alive so if I have any little pauses during this it's because I'm just reminding myself don't go too thick with my accent and keep to modern English instead of slipping into an old dialect but other than that yeah I mean um I've been really thinking about this question as well because I knew it would come up listening to your other podcasts about how I got started with my craft and really I used to think when I was a kid like I had a really normal upbringing and it's only as I got older I thought it's not really that ordinary or typical upbringing for me I started more like most people start with like the Christianity sort of on them and then they move over and they find witchcraft or paganism or some type of magical system and for me it was quite the opposite I was brought up practically a polytheist I was brought up to embrace all cultures look at what I wanted and see where I wanted to fit so it wasn't until I went to um I don't know what you call them in America but like primary school like the very first 
sort of grad that's where I found out about Jesus like I didn't know who Jesus was you know it was like this you know you learn numbers you learn words oh there's a guy called Jesus you know it was very much an introduction there because it was um, I went to a Church of England school which sounds really religious it's not that religious they were actually really open um but um one thing that does make me laugh though is um I was baptised into the Church of England because the school that my mum wanted to get me into, which is the best school, we only had two schools in our town, and that was the best school. You automatically got a place if your kid had been baptised in the local church. So it was a case of, I was just tucked down. There was this day, it's like a free day. Everyone just goes with their kid. It's just a quick sprinkle with the water and then that's it. You get a little certificate. You can take it into school and be like, I want to register my child, please. And then you get a guaranteed spot in this really good school. So it was like, yeah, it was the first time I'd ever been in a church. And yeah, just quick holy water. It was like two seconds. I was the only baby that didn't cry. And it always makes me laugh because there's a teaching that when the baby cries, that's when the baptisms talk. So it's like, it just didn't stick. <laughs> um but yeah formality I still got a class yeah it really was I think I think there was a few kids in my school who did literally had only ever been in that church just to get school placement that's um (laughs) it sounds terrible but it's true no I I mean it's maybe strange to some people out here but I I actually know for us in America um when you enter a private school, it's quite hard to get into some of them. Some people want to get into higher or, or better educate better education. I say that in quotations um, in a private school. And for a lot of people, especially with well-established schools that are a bit more selective about the people that they take in, sometimes um, it is helpful. Oftentimes, like these private schools will also be part of churches. And it is very helpful if you are already a member of the church mm-hmm. and you're already baptized in the church. Um, because if you're an outsider coming in, they're like, we don't know you. <laughs> We're gonna yeah. take the kids that we do know as opposed to all these other people. But I, as you were saying that, I was, I was thinking to myself, I was like, ah, yes, uh, the lessons of, of reading, writing, arithmetic, and Jesus Christ. <laughs> yes, the three R's and the J. <laughs> right. <laughs> I went to public school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, writing starts with a W, but it makes the R sound. <laughs> um, so I'm sorry, Greg, to interrupt you, but you were you were saying um, your upbringing was what you considered fairly normal, and then um, when did you have that realization? Was it was it in your in your um, grade school? Yeah, it sort of was. So, I mean, I, I remember there was this particular conversation. The most religion we really ever had was we had assembly every single morning. But on a Friday, the vicar would come and he would do the assembly. It wasn't overly rammed down your throat, though. It was like he'd just, like, tell you a bit about his life, some of his kids have been doing, um, you know. He'd just say something and he'd just really just tie it into a biblical-like story at the end, like, oh, by the way, this type of moral was also taught by Jesus in this chapter, and then he'd just say a blessing and he'd leave. But one of the things that I really loved was occasionally they'd take us down to the church and we'd just sit there while he did, like, his thing. And I remember really being excited afterwards and I come home and tell my mom and it was because I this was my first exposure to a church and I was like oh wow this is so cool I love church and she was like oh that's great what did you like about it and 
the basically the description that I gave, I was really under the impression that the vicar was a ceremonial magician. Like I just saw altar, candles, incense, robes. And I was like, this is so cool. I love it. And then I wanted to like talk to him about, you know, did he know any witches, blah, blah, blah. And my mom was like, maybe we don't talk about those things with the vicar. And I was like, why? And then that was really when I was like, oh, these things are just normal things that people talk about. You know, this is something you know, maybe at home or in certain places, but not necessarily with the vicar, you know, when he comes visiting. And, and sometimes he'd come into like the classes too. So it was like, yeah, these are not questions to ask him. If he says, have you got any questions? It's like witches and, you know, other things. It's like, no, that's not really his wheelhouse. So it was like, that was the start of me really thinking, oh, okay, this is something a bit more alternative. But the school itself was really open. Like I was like, if certain holidays were being celebrated, but it was in school time, they were quite happy for me to not be in school to, so I could observe holidays at home. So, I mean, they were really open in that respect, but it was just like when the vicar visits, so really a Friday, it was just not a witch day. And that was, that was really it. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting you say that. I remember when I was younger, you know, and, and, and I got into witchcraft and I'm not going to go into my whole entry again, because I feel like that's in every other episode situation. But um, <laughs> there was a time where I feel like, because my mom struggled back and forth with her religious beliefs and letting me be free and open. And there was a time I think she kind of settled on letting me just learn what I wanted to learn because I was passionate and interested, but she did sit me down and, and she did say like, Marshall, you can watch this movie, you can see this, this documentary, you can read this book, but you can't talk about it at school anymore. You need to not bring this up with teachers and, 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 and not talk about it with your peers that I'm letting you watch it. And it was a weird crossover between, I think her kind of relinquishing power to me, but also, I, I hope she's not listening but she does. She listens to our podcast sometimes. And so I think she knows I'm talking about when I say like, there was a, I think there was a hint of, of a little bit of not shame. Shame is the worst word, but it's the only thing I can put to it right now where there was a little bit of like, I don't want other parents to feel like I'm a bad parent for letting you do this. But I don't think she actually felt like a bad parent. It was that fight between perception versus reality. And, and I think that's one of those things that's sometimes really hard for parents of kids exploring different religions, spiritualities, ideas, especially in the 90s, man. Um, obviously that wasn't exactly the case for, for, for your upbringing, but I felt like I definitely identified with that, that, that well, not so subtle warning. It sounds almost in a way like uh, a protection, you know, mm -hmm. she's, I, I know people in, um, uh, who are in a type of like psychology environment, but they, they work with students and they're in like a classroom environment. And, you know, we have to, they've told me that they have to be very cognizant. You know, some parents are in traditions that like the kids might come to school and be like, oh, mommy talks to dead people all the time and goes to seances. And like, we have to be really careful about that because, you know, making sure that, you know, it can lead to a lot of problems. So mm -hmm. that sounds normal to me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I would like to ask you about your first publication. Um, you wrote the book Aradia, a modern guide to Charles Godfrey Leland's Gospel of the Witches. The way you said it earlier, I was like, wow, that just like rolled off of your tongue. You've said that a couple of times, haven't you? I have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Quite a bit. 
Before we dive into it, um, for a lot of our listeners, I was really excited to have you come on today. Um, I've been reading your book. I've attempted to try to get into Aradia before. I've never gotten deep, deep, deep into the material as I have processing your book, which has been so, so helpful. Do you think you can give some of our listeners um, just kind of like a, a brief synopsis of Aradia so they get an idea about what, what the gist of this gospel is? Sure. So um, I think really to do that, I'll start with the original. Mm -hmm. So um, in 1899, um, the um, the first publication of this came out. And like you said, it's quite difficult to navigate and get mm -hmm. through. It's quite um, a dense book in how it's laid out, not necessarily in its content per se, but in the way that it's delivered. Mm -hmm. And when I first came across it, which was in my teens, so um, I really started looking at other witchcraft then because my high school had a really, it was it was terrible for doing your homework in, but it had a really great occult section. So that's where I started that, that was all that was literally anything I checked out was just an occult book I never needed it for anything it was literally just I got all the books um, and that's where I first discovered the original and I thought it was really clunky a bit weird but I really wanted to understand it because the um, the history behind it is obviously something that has informed the movement of modern witchcraft. It's such an influential text. And it wasn't until um, later when I got my own copy and I just, it was really one of those, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed the Italian section and then thought, I don't remember that being in here, you know, like that thing being said. So then I look to the English bit and it just did not say that. So then when I got to any Italian passages, I just started reading those and it started making more sense. So when it came to writing my own, it was really doing that. I retranslated the Italian, which then stripped back that sort of clunky narrative. And then I added my own analysis on the historical and cultural context of those passages and trying to really say how it can still apply to people today even though it's a really old book mm -hmm. and then on the back part it was really just to give excited like a pet too and that was just to give people food for thought like how can we take certain elements of the the mythos and what that's trying to convey and how can we sort of weave that and pull from it into our existing craft or just create something new from scratch um, but I didn't want to create anything definitive I wanted people to just sort of digest it think on it and come up with their own sort of way and process based on what the gospel starts to mean for them as they're reading it if you this may sound kind of silly if you were to give an elevator pitch to someone about what's in this book like what's the story someone's like so if I were to open this like what's what would I read in the back of the cover to entice me or like what's what are the characters who are they what are they for what would you say to someone to get them to go like okay no I gotta read this book yeah so um really it is about um, which is in Italy being liberated from their oppressors by this wonderful teacher and witch called Aradia and how she taught them how to rise up defend themselves using witchcraft smash down the church and all that great stuff that witches do on the weekend. It's all the uh, compacting one place and it's very beautiful. Read it. <laughs> I'm sold. <laughs> I'm sold. Absolutely. Aradia is um, one of my favorite uh, texts because it's, uh, it's very liberating in the way that it's worded, um, you know, regardless of 
the the naysay on on Godfrey's or on Leland's um, uh, historical accuracies. I don't think that's quite the point. I think the point is is the myth, is the story. Um, Craig, can you tell us what the process of writing this book was like? Um, you have a contention, or, or I'm sorry, there is a lot of historical contention around it um, with such a historical manuscript. Can you tell us how you navigated that? Sure. So um, really the process of it was, um, as I give in the introduction, a little story where um, I loved this book once I got into it reading the Italian bits. And I really, it was one of those where I really wanted to read this book you know as it is I wanted somebody to go in and explore it retranslate it and I saw a book come out and it was a reprint with a foreword on it and there's so many versions of it that are the original with a new foreword and I was just having this discussion it was just a flippant comment with my mum this day I think I was in the kitchen and I just said oh somebody's done this but oh, I'm seeing like this book again but no one's really delved in and I really want to read a book. I just wish somebody would write it. And she said, well, you've been saying this for ages, for years. You've got all these notes, you've read it, you know what you want saying. You write the book, you know, um, don't wait for somebody else to write it. You know, if you really want to, you know, read it, somebody else is going to want to read it. So start the conversation and then you'll get what you want because that's what I really wanted. I wanted people to have conversations with about it but I needed people to understand it the way that I could so it was really that she was like well then start the conversation yourself and then people will pick it up they'll read it they'll likely reach out to you if you're the author and then you can have those conversations and you can explore those things deeper so that's what I did I went got my computer out started typing um started digging out the box um I had um, a slight breakdown <laughs> at one point in it because I started getting bogged down in all these history books all these books around me that were open it was like you know when you see like this conspiracy theory people and they got like the board with the string it was sort of like that I was going a bit stir crazy and um there's this concept um within Italian which I really love um this phrase and it says the translator is the traitor because when you translate something you lose the, the nuance around those words it starts to mean something else mm -hmm. so that's why I had my revelations to try and keep as much of the cultural nuance that was lost by making it English so the English people could still see what it should sort of be saying but then I got bogged down with well, could I say it like this or could I say it like that? And you know, like when you've got like three or four ways you could possibly say something, it's like what keeps the essence best. Mm -hmm. um, so I had a break and then it was one of those, turn to other people and say, this is the original, this is what I've wrote, which do you think? And I just got like unanimous thing and I was like, right, great. And then it set me back on track. Um, but yeah, it, it was a weird one, but I enjoyed the process. I loved the revelations because uh, there were times where I would read a passage as, as it's written in the gospel. I love the way you've broken it down for our listeners who I deeply suggest get this book. It's broken down with the gospel itself and, and sometimes notes from, from, from Leland and then your revelations and analysis of this text. And I felt like I walked away with so much more understanding after reading your revelations. Now I'm curious. So supposedly, this manuscript was given to Charles Godfrey Leland uh, by his assistant, his Italian assistant, is that correct? 
And um, it, it was like a, a contact. He had like a friend yeah. in Italy. Yeah. In like 1886. So like a hundred years before I was born. And then it took him about 12, 13, 12, 13 years, 1899, until it was fully translated and published. And there's a lot of contention around this manuscript, disagreements between folklorists and historians. Can you can you shed some light on why this has has been so contentious for for listeners? Like some say it's it's not a real manuscript. Some say it's made up. Some say it's historical. And, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on that idea. So um, really, the the biggest contention that I started with the first sort of um, thing that I came across when I was more familiar with the book, but before I was ever writing it, was um, people thought that he'd wrote it himself. It was from scratch. Madeleine didn't exist. And it was just something he wrote. Mm -hmm. The thing that I never accepted with that is the Italian sections I wrote with Italian skill, I'll just say, that is far better than he had um, through his translation. His translation did not match the level of writing, the nuance of the words used. Um, his inability to translate section showed that it was someone more familiar with the language than he was. So I couldn't accept he had wrote it because it was more advanced. It was more of a native speaker's way of writing. Um, and there's also sections that look like they're done by dictation. So my part of my uh, background is as a teacher. And one of the things that I would do when people are taking notes and you're dictating is you'll pause and then repeat a little bit of the last thing you said and then carry on. So anyone who's lagging behind still hears the end that they might have missed again. And there's times where that repeats and people have translated this by not looking at it as sentences um, but as just the individual lines, he did it so it indented with shortened lines. And people have just translated these sections and he did it too, which means some of that repetition where you can tell it's dictated repetition got translated as the start of a new sentence. And then they're making complete sentences. It, it, it throws the direction off. And he, he obviously didn't recognize where one sentence started and the next one started. So... I can't accept that he wrote this from scratch mm -hmm. in, a, in original Italian. Um, as for Madalena and where she got it from, there are sections that look like they come from different regions of Italy. So when the book was published, um, Italy was not unified and it didn't have one version specifically of Italian. Modern Italian, if you went and learned like Italian with a course, you'd learn Tuscan because it's the generic now for learning Italian. It's a generic um, regional variation. But you see these little variations of different regions, which shows that they must have come from different people. Um, so when she's gone collecting, these people have to live in slightly different pockets of southern Italy. So you can tell it's been compiled and collaborated by a few people, which is the original claim. So for me, the writing shows the fingerprint of the different areas. So I have no reason to doubt that it came from so many different people because it looks like a collaborative text, if that wow. makes sense. Oh, no, that does. That that. That explains it so much better than I think I even understood it until now, because I recently made a post, you know, about about the history of of documentation of of witches, say, worshipping or working with or, or, or being Dianic in some way, shape or form yeah. that exists, that does exist. There are facts and, and examples and, and publications and historical uh, historical texts where we see these things 
you know, kind of spread out. So there, there is context of these things existing beforehand. Were they gathered together? Very, very, it sounds very probable. Was it a absolute, this is a religion that every witch follows exactly to a T? Maybe not. We, we can't really totally know that this will be a unified religion, especially if it's not even a unified country at this point in time yet. So I actually was very, very fascinated by kind of like this rift between folklorists and historians who are like, there's no empirical proof. And they're like, but there's evidence. And I think a lot of people really kind of mix up. Evidence is not the same word as proof. So, um, and I'm not sitting here saying that Margaret Murray was right. And there was a witch cult of Western Europe. I'm not getting into Murrayisms or giving, giving over to that. But I do like to look at the evidence. I like the anecdotal evidence. I think even it's one of those things that to be truly honest, especially as someone who's inspired by folklore, it doesn't necessarily have to be perfectly real as presented if it's working for you. Um, that's just my little two cents. Yeah. 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 I think um, you're right, Marshall. The, the myth is, and that's the point, the myth is, is the story, not necessarily the reality, although the reality of it can, can help uh, push that. I think... Um, that makes a lot of sense what you were saying, Craig, about the, the text being indented. When you read most Aradia texts, it's set up almost um, almost like, like, like a middle column. A, right, like a poem. Like they're usually set up middle columns, very short lines, very indented on both sides. Um, and so that's, that's very interesting that you uh, bring that up about the even the way that the sentences are framed um, it can aid in a mistransliteration of the text or taking out some of the nuance because I think it's, um, it's meant to read quite poetic and it does, at least in English. Um, but that's very interesting to me. So thanks for, thanks for pointing that out. I've never noticed that. Yeah, it's one of the things that I think gets most overlooked in other people's translations too, is I think it's why I edge up agreeing like, yeah, I, I'll just do the translation because I have read other translations and some aren't too bad, but I mean, the authors, I will give them the credit. They do say when they hit points of regional words and they're like, I'm making a guess at what this word means because I don't know this word personally um, because, um, some people, you know, they just have never heard the terms before. But with Italian, because it, it's sometimes called the language that sings because it has a very lyrical quality to it. So you can sort of gather, you know, if you didn't know what a word was, but that nuance would definitely be lost because if you don't understand the context, then you miss the layers to it as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's something that really popped up here that I really kind of I've seen it in other places as well, so I'd like to bring it up for our listeners to, to hear. There seems to be like a regular theme of threatening saints and deities, a lot of threatening, like do this or else. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, when um, you start to see this trend actually in history in other places, um, where when the church starts making, and there are popular examples of this, so I think most witches are familiar with, where deities get turned into saints, like um, Bridget, 
Bridget Brigantia gets turned into Saint Bridget. You know, those things where you see that very clear transition from deity to saint. Mm -hmm. And it's almost this idea of, um, you know, stop worshipping these things the saints you can only worship god so then you start getting the introduction of saint shaming where it's almost like i'm not going to respectfully approach you because that's reserved for god he's the only one who gets my sort of respect so i'm just going to come and i'm just going to threaten you and do these like type of borderline necromantic rituals like right you're a dead person i'm just going to threaten you and then you're going to do this or else and it really does stem from that where it's this transition of you see it in um, a number of cultures where the local deities turn into saints and then the saint shaming comes in it's like stop venerating them stop giving them them offerings you're just going to threaten them and they're going to do what you want basically and um yeah the gospel is a beautiful example of southern italy retaining a lot of its folklore and its folk teachings but then the impact of being a roman catholic country where this idea that really you shouldn't probably be worshipping anything that isn't god i think sometimes you get this um what i know a lot of um, irish catholics and they often say oh um you might intellectually disagree with something but you get a lot of catholic guilt and i think mm -hmm. it's the same thing in italy it's like almost hedging your bets like i really want to work with this deity but um I don't want to, what, what if I'm wrong, you know, do I still want my ticket to heaven, you know, do I still want St. Peter but let me in, so it's like, so I'm going to just do like I would with a saint, and then I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I'm in a, a bit of a grey area, you know, I might be off at a tome for it, where if I just don't know, start worshipping them, I've then turned my back on the church, and I think some people are like that, they, um, they have that bit of guilt, which I find really interesting, but then again, with my upbringing, I didn't have that, so... For me, it's just like, woohoo, deities, you know, <laughs> the more the merrier. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of the saint shaming comes from uh, the culture blend and the um, the power that the church has, which is actually really waning a lot in Italy. Every year you get these little stories every now and again where the um, the Vatican saying, we need more exorcists because people are turning to witchcraft. Witchcraft is actually really popular in Italy quite now, uh, quite okay. big now. So, yeah, it's... It, I, I think it's fair, Jen. I know You're, a lot of uh, modern uh, Italian witches. It's very fascinating. Sorry, Marshall, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say this is a little out of order in, in the brief. I don't know why I put it here and not earlier now that we bring this up, but I, I'm curious. Can we talk a little bit about how Catholicism and fairy lore specifically have kind of weaved their way into this tale because you notice and you, you mentioned in the revelations that sometimes uh, it's very interchangeable or, or uh, it's almost like you can't have one without the other they're kind of just all plopped up together yeah i think the thing with um the fairy law specifically is that a lot of the words with few exceptions i will say um the word for witch and the word for fairy is the same words so that's where i talked a bit earlier where i said like sometimes there's levels of nuance in words um so you have this thing where the fae are quite involved like they're almost in the hierarchy with deities i think that's where the deity element then starts coming in with the witches because if if the the fae and the witch are sort of very blurred and the fae are in the entourage of a deity then the witches have to then 
or should be in the entourage of this deity too. And I think that's where it starts to mesh and blend in. And then with the Catholicism, I, I find it quite funny myself, but um, it's sort of true. You can take like the Italian out of the church, but you can't take the church out of the Italian. Like mm-hmm. I really love, I've, I've, I've never been Catholic. I don't understand all of its complex theology, but I love the aesthetic of it. I love the robes, the incense, the candles, the Latin, you know, and there's something about it that I just think is beautiful. And you'll have people who are Italian atheists, but they will have like a Virgin Mary in their house. And I think a lot of it is because when the church came in and it dominated, it absorbed a lot of the culture. So a lot of people really are Italian. They're not really properly um, Catholic. It's more like the Catholicism is part of the culture. It's where your culture lives. So it's like with food, you know, food, Catholicism, you know, it's all part of just your makeup and who you are. So really, I think a lot of people embrace it more as a celebration. Like I have rosary beads that have never been used, you know, but it's one of those, they're made out of olive wood from Italy. They're made in Italy. So it's like, you have to have these because it's just a thing that Italians have. It's like, you can pray. It was pretty much given to me with pray to whoever you want with them. Don't even pray with them. Use them as an accessory, but you should have a pair of rosary beads, a set of rosary beads. And it's just one of those things. It's like you just have them because you have them because they're just things to have. I think it's almost like having like a flag or something, you know, just to show a bit of national pride. It's sort of like have Catholic things, you know, it's just like it's not really religious. They're just sort of there, you know, so it's like um, I think it, it would have been unsurprising for even witches to have sort of Catholic elements there, because let's just for a moment suspend disbelief and say, yes, these witches were there and they were doing everything they were accused of. I still think they would have had those things just for the fact that it's just so ingrained into the culture. Mm-hmm. And everybody, no matter where you are, what you believe, if you live in a country, you embrace the culture in some way or another. And I think when that's such a big one and people don't necessarily expect you to necessarily 100% believe to embrace it, I think people just would, you know? Very much so. It's it, the, um, the thing where the witch may be existing, there's still a community role with the witch, even though it's kind of a, a, at least I'm talking in, in a mythological term um, or an archetypal term, I guess. Uh, the witch sits as a destructive figure to the community, but that's still a community role. And I think what you were saying about um, a, a witch, uh, you're still going to be a part of your culture, even though like, yes, of course the witch is going to have a, a, a rosary uh, bead um, because Oh, why wouldn't you? You're Catholic. You're still operating within that that framework, even though you're not trying to be a part of that framework. But you still have to use the tools, and and you're still going to be existing within within that that type of uh, ideology, even though you're trying to rid yourself of it. You know. But yeah, you said that so much. It. You said that so much better than I did. I, I wish that's how I thought. Yeah, that was brilliant. It. <laughs> it got me thinking. Well, you know, it's really funny. The first time I ever tried to read this without without your revelations is it was there were it was very confusing because I was obviously reading an English translation of an Italian uh, manuscript that's a conglomerate from from multiple contributors from a, over a century ago. So I didn't understand. Okay, so the story goes that 
Diana and her brother Lucifer, who's also supposed to be Apollo, who she saved from hell, who's also the king of hell, but not the Christian Lucifer. <laughs> you know, that together they they have a baby, but he runs from her and she chases him, and then they have Aradia. And Aradia becomes the queen of witches who saves the people. So it, it was it was a lot. It's you can see the Mediterranean and the surrounding people from all around it really kind of came together into the story and and you fed in from Rome, you fed in from, from Catholicism, you fed in from a lot of different ideas. And I don't think I understood it till I understood the context that was really kind of explained in this book. And one of the things I loved, I, I wanna, um, I'm gonna skip one and come back to it in a second because I really, really loved, and this is my favorite thing about this book is that it was a poetic battle cry to overthrow your oppressors. And just because I want our listeners who may not have picked this book up, I, I wrote this down and I wanted them to hear a very specific and early line from, from, from the, the manuscript itself. And thou shalt always be the first of witches, the first witch to become in the world. And thou shalt teach the art of poisoning, to poison those who are great lords of all, to make them die in their palaces. And thou shalt bind the spirit of the oppressor. And when you find a miserable peasant who is rich, then ye shall teach them, the witch, your pupil, how to ruin his crops and tempest dire, with lightning and with thunder and with hail and wind. And when a priest shall do you injury or do evil by his benedictions, ye shall do to him double the harm with my name, with the name of Diana, Queen of the Witches. I, this, is, this is the text that early Wicca is supposed to be inspired by. The, you know, the one that eventually became the do no harm rule of three, threefold law. This was a, I mean, I, I, I can't use any other word. This was a battle cry to literally slay your oppressors. I think that really gets underplayed a lot by, by the witchcraft community because, and it's one of the reasons why I know Austin and I always talk about how witchcraft is inherently political because that's exactly what this is. And that's literally like my favorite uh, section of the book. It's in like what the first, it's in the first chapter. The very first chapter. And the last part literally says, and basically both ye men and women shall dance naked until the last of your oppressors are dead. And it's, it's very like when you read it for the first time, you're like, this is some shit. <laughs> um, but I'd like to you to talk a little bit more about like, I guess maybe what was going on at this time. What was so important? What was the the um, impetus for the oppression that was going on or, and, and how it affected witchcraft on the line from this book? Can I just start with something just a little before that? Of course, you said of course. Yeah, you said something and it just made me, uh, when you said about this is the book that influenced um, like Gardnerian witchcraft and things like that. Um, and it just made me think of a quick point, which will feed into your question, actually, mm -hmm. um, which is um, the difference between um, witchcraft um, or British witchcraft, I'll say, as it's done here and how it is on your side of the pond mm. uh, where you said about like the threefold law and things like that like if you talk to the Gardnerians in this country 
there is no qualm about cursing somebody if it's needed. You know, it's very, very um, much that hail brimstone, thunder, lightning, you know, it is very much there, you know, um, because um, when you said at the end, the line, you double the harm in my name in the name of Diana, you know, um, the threefold law as it's taught over here is not like, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think most people um, in America or in literature that comes from America, I think I should better say, um, tends to be almost interpreted like karma. You know, this idea of you mm -hmm. do something and it bounces back. And that's not how it's taught over here. How it's taught over here is that you, the witch, are empowered so that if somebody tries to do something to you, but you have your protections up and yours is stronger, you can set up the almost the um, retaliation that it will be, that the, the harm will be done threefold. And I, I've often wondered, is it inspired by that passage in the gospel where it's done double the harm but they want to triple the harm because it's its interpretation is practically as it is in that book mm -hmm. so um it, it's not really this karmic thing it's more something that you the witch are empowered to do against your enemies somebody opposes you you can retaliate threefold that is the power the goddess gives to you and in the gospel it's double the harm but it's still the power that the goddess gives to you so um i think from um even the modern circles today are very close to the book um that sort of inspired it there's just the numbers change from double to triple um but within the older context um with the oppressors in italy um God, this is going to be a bit of a history lesson. I don't remember the name of the guy or the book, which is a terrible way to start a history lesson, but there was a guy, um, I think he was Cardinal in the Vatican. If I can find this, I'm going to make a little post when this goes out. I'll um, I'll share a link on Instagram and on, um, on Twitter directing people here, but I'll also, if I find the book, I'll mention the book. Um, but I know it was wrote in 1300 and it was when the church decided to make their official stance to stamp out witches, it was the thing that started the entire European witch craze from this one book. And I can't remember what it's called, <laughs> but um, in that book, it's the very first time that we get the phrase La Vecchia Religione, the old religion. And that is literally the description that is used to give the entire justification for stamping out witchcraft because it is the old religion and it's fighting the regime of the church. So I think this narrative of like the priest coming to do harm with his sort of, his benedictions really are the power that his God gives to him. So it's like the authority that he has from his God, from his church. And I think the rebellion is almost of, um, you know, well, we're stronger, we can do the harm back double i think it's almost the rally cry of not buckling to the pressure of the church when it's trying to stamp something out whatever that thing was or what they was defining as witchcraft or the old religion um it was something that people must have been doing because they invested a lot of money a lot of time a lot of effort into stamping out whatever they perceived was a threat and so i think even if the gospel was a later um, revival of old archetypal imagery. That imagery is still something that was taken away from you by the church. And so I think this sort of, like you said, it's like a battle cry. And I really love that description. And um, 
I think what better battle cry than saying no matter what they throw at us, we can throw double back. You know, I think it really gives you that morale of you're on the winning side because no matter what power they have, you have more. And I think any oppressed people, I mean, um, you know, think of just literally any oppressed people in history. It is the moment that you stand up and you fight back and you say, I'm not handing my power to you. I'm going to use my power, raise my voice, and I'm going to show that I'm here and I'm not moving anywhere. And I think all the best rally cries and war cries start with that message of, I have the power and you can't take it from me. Mm. And so I think that's why it speaks to so many people today. Like it speaks to you too. It speaks to me. I think anyone who's ever been in a position where they felt pushed down will resonate with that passage because it's something that we can all draw strength from, even if we just take it as a metaphor and apply it to another part of life. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree with that. And it's one of the reasons, honestly, that I feel like um, I, it's a, a, politics is a huge thing that actually drives my craft. Um, and it's not necessarily about, a lot of people hear the word politics and they immediately think like, Republican or Democrat voting. It's so much bigger than that. In fact, it's smaller than that. It's in a local level. We have to think about what we're doing, why we're doing it. And, and sometimes, and maybe it's just me, I think bigger than me uh, all the time about all things, how my actions are helping or harming people around me. And, and one of the things that I felt like, like you kind of mentioned it, like the, uh, um, the priests during this time period, they had the power of God handed down to them and they were had the authority of God handed down to them and were able to do what they did with it. And it felt like this, this manuscript, it's almost like, okay, I'll do one better. I give you the authority of Diana. I give you power of Aradia. I give you, like, I give you, I give you fucking magic. Like it was one of those things that for me, it just really spoke to, to, it spoke to my craft. And while I don't necessarily find myself being a Diana worshiper, the story itself is just so inspiring. And um, I was very much, I wanted to really bring the attention to this for, for people who have never read Aradia or people who only had a, a passing uh, idea of what it was and, and maybe not realize the context of, of its larger implications. Can you share with us, I'd love to know, because there's a there's a little bit of a connection in the revelations as well as the text, and I've tried to do some research on it, but I'd love to hear more from you. Can you tell us about the connection of Aradia to Herodias? Yeah, this is like um, a weird one. So, okay. you have the, the, the church interpretation always dominates the conversation. Of course. And it's sort of like I was saying before about like the saint shaman, you get this shift of things being pulled into the, um, the Christian or the church's worldview. And I think you have to sometimes search for the original context. So the really earliest reference we have to her is from, as Neil said, 1900, no, 906 um, AD. Um, in the Canon Episcopi, and it is the first time that the church really identifies that there is um, a problem with people praying to um, Diana, and they they just have this small section that says that she is accompanied by Herodias, or um, Herodias. It, it varies sometimes depending on who's wrote it, mm -hmm. and where I think it's evolved into a radia is 
again through regional the different regions you, you see that sometimes with words where they almost break down or an, an end drops off or a letter changes in some regions and then some of the really far away and i think what it is is it's just a natural evolution of a word that has spread out through a country and then also a lot of this stuff was originally taught in latin and when people didn't speak latin this is the reason that we have like um I mean, um, a lot of churches have the stained glass windows and they were really there as little calling cards. Like if people couldn't understand the Latin, it was like you could just sort of point at a picture and sort of say, oh, the guy with like the, the ring of white around his head, that's Jesus. And then they could pretty much just follow the story around the church. It was like little prompt cards almost, mm -hmm. um, but just done as really decorative windows. But it also means that um, a lot of Latin phrases got really corrupted and garbled and it was basically like what people just sort of remember how they remembered it then mm -hmm. it gets passed down orally so i think the the name has probably just really changed as it's sort of gone down the generations um but um as you'll know um i, I can't remember what chapter it was in it might have been chapter two i discussed like a breakdown of what her name looks like it translates as today Mm -hmm. um, from both Latin and Italian and all those possible combinations and nuances and levels to the words apply to her throughout the book and the stories so whether it was a little bit of reverse engineering as well of like oh well all these things sort of apply to her this name sort of fits is this what she's called I think that's what it is I think the connection really is that it's just the same name that's got slightly garbled down the generations um but in a way I sort of find that really beautiful too and um, like too. you I'm I'm not a, a devotee of um, Diana but like you said it really speaks to my craft. And one thing that I really sort of um, like about it is that um, I often say this, even though I don't like worship these deities, is I've often said um, when people have asked, I think Aradia is the natural goddess of the witches. I don't say that she has to be the goddess of the witches or that you even have to have a goddess, but I think if you choose one, she's natural to be there because she's the only named being, either in her original name form or the one that we give her now, Aradia, who has never been worshipped by any other people and i think if you think about all the goddesses and all the cults they had mm -hmm. that are very fond to us today but they had other people worshiping them too to have a name that's just uniquely ours i think as witches having that one thing that we all universally can claim and have in common and nobody else can touch or take or say that's theirs i think it's really beautiful you know as much as people my god that's cultural appropriation that's something else that's something else that's something else which are all things to respect of course but i also think equally there should be a, a slight degree of respect of no matter if you're italian or not she's for all witches and she's that one thing that we all have in common if we choose to embrace her and she's the one thing that nobody can take away from us and i think that also feeds into her call to free yourself from oppression because that tells us that power is ours the moment you claim to be a witch it's your legacy it's your history it's your culture regardless of when you have it because i often think a person's craft is only as good as you you can have all the people behind you you can have all the lineage behind you but your craft is only ever as good as you and what you do with it and if you claim this power then that power is yours and nobody can take that from you and that's one thing that i find really beautiful about that connection because at no point in history does it belong to any other people
That's so true. That's I had never considered that before. And you know, it's funny because here we are in 2022, and I swear. And for listeners, please understand, I'm someone who loves who loves Hakate, but you can't throw a stone without seeing Hakate's name pop up. And what's funny is originally Hakate had nothing to do with witchcraft. She was not the queen of witches. She actually had a dominion of land, sea, and sky. Like there was a, it was a completely different setup versus how we view an evolution of this goddess to what she is now. But Aradia was not. She always always as as far as back as the existence had that entitlement i had never considered that before yeah it's one of my favorite things about how it really is mm-hmm. uh shifting gears a little bit mm-hmm. um some of the practical magic that is embedded within the text um we can see themes firstly common themes that are throughout most of europe um lemon stones etc cetera, etc cetera. we also have like evidence from things like Pliny the Elder, who very much so talks about holy stones, saying like, uh, or, or calls them, you know, serpent stones, where he's ascribing them as being like uh, recorded from the Gauls, I believe, and 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 he's saying that like it, it they come from uh, pits of snakes where they're all slobbering together and their their venom drips down and forms these calcified stones, or even that they're um, in another passage he says that they're they're their venom is so acrid that it can dissolve stone, uh, uh, stone and, and forms these little holes. And so they're attributed to lots of magic. And I can clearly see that through multiple texts, including Aradia, um, who doesn't talk about them being from serpents, but ascribes them to having great power. Um, can you tell us about the Holy Stone and, and how that's super, uh, similar or different to a hagstone? This is actually one of my favourite, one of my favourite parts of the whole book. It's so subtle and I will say I'm so glad when I saw that this question was going to be um, asked because um, it was, when you're an author, you don't get much decision on what ends up on the cutting room floor when your book goes out. And the book as it stands now was going to be even more edited, um, but there were certain things that I said, if they went, there's practically no point to the translation or to the chapter because it loses the connection. But this was one of the things that did get caught. So I'm so glad I get to talk about it now, which was um, there is such a huge connection between um, the the Holy Stone um, in the gospel and the Hag Stones. So I'm bringing it from Italy and bringing it back to the UK for a second. Mm -hmm. So Hag Stones derive from the word Hag, which comes from Hag Tess. And the Hag Tess was like the native um, prophetess, the seer. And they would wear these as talismans or stones. And um, the really cool thing about the Hag Tess is it said that she could be possessed by the goddess and the goddess would then speak through her and then she would give like messages for like the tribes or whatever like back when we was like a tribal nation um she would be the voice for the goddess and in southern italy you get this word there's actually two versions of the word and it's for which and it's far 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 more um, more popular popular than um strega and the word is either um, Yanara or Dianara and the word literally means witch but it also means follower of Diana or one who is possessed by the spirit of Diana hmm. and they also have these talismans of these 
stones with holes in them. Um, and I personally believe that when um, we were invaded by the Romans, they were here for quite a long time, um, they were carrying a lot of Celtic stuff back to their land, assimilating it, doing that whole Roman interpretation, like, well, this is a god, but it's also this god, it's one of ours, but it's theirs. Um, you know, trying to really merge the communities. And so I suspect this is how the stone of the, the native prophetess here became associated with the deity possession prophetesses in Italy. Um, the serpent connection from Pliny, I'm really glad you also mentioned that, because um, in um, Greece and in Rome, the idea was that the, um, the prophetesses got their power from serpents. And sometimes it was from serpent venom, sometimes it was from um, inhaling the fumes of these um, you know, serpents that have been killed and then their bodies were decomposing and because they've been slayed by gods, usually gods like Apollo, which obviously then ties back in, it's been touched by his divinity. So it lets out these fumes and he was a god of prophecy. So then it gives them prophecy when they inhale it. Um, but then just this connection to the stone between the two cultures, it's exactly the same description. And in, um, in England, you started seeing these little points. It was towards the, the end of the Roman Empire when we were ready for booting them out and sending them back across the sea, um, that you started seeing the Hagtas, that was the native British prophetesses. They started then being described as being possessed by Diana specifically. So even the goddess changes, and it's exactly the same as the word for witch. In, in southern Italy, the, the um, Yanara or Dianara, those witches who are possessed by the spirit of the goddess. So the connection is really huge um, because really they are effectively the same thing and it's just a merger of cultures blended together. So it's a bit Celtic, it's a bit Italian, a bit Roman, um, probably even a little um, Grecian in a way because they had that commonality with um, the views on prophetesses anywhere so it's it's a little mixed bag really but i i sort of think it's cool so thanks for asking the question i really was glad to share that information with everyone well i wanted to say like one of the things i loved specifically about the gospel of radia is one the accessibility of everything within it everything is so accessible everything is something you either find or get at your local market for extremely cheap. And I, I brought up the whole point of the stone because it was something that seemed not necessarily universal, but in multiple other traditions, it reminded me of the hag stone. And as I was reading it, I was just like, this is, this is so wildly simple, yet it's so impactfully profound. And, and in the gospel, it says the invocation of the holy stone. And I thought it was funny because it has a hole in it. And I said, I have found a pitted stone upon the ground. I thank my destiny for the happy find and the spirit who brought me upon this path. And it may prove to be for my true good and my good fortune. It's, it was, it was so simple. And it was one of those things like here I am, you know, gathering like 16 different items from my local landscape to create a, a talisman of power and good fortune. And I'm like, oh, a holy stone. Like, <laughs> I think sometimes we as practitioners in the modern era complicate things so much because so many times we are actually removed from original texts and source materials. We're reading lots of, of revised versions of revised versions and, and modern crafts. And I loved just how, how, how everything was simple and accessible. And I want to say straightforward, but obviously needing some explanations <laughs> from within. Um, now, there's another stone 
in this in this manuscript as well the round stone and the conjuration of the and i think this is what you said the uh scas is did i say that right very close it's scatsamorelio scatsamorelio okay perfect thank you for all for all the italians that i butchered i'm trying <laughs> tell me about that because that's a little different isn't it yeah so um with the round stone you have this um sort of idea um a lot within the folklore anywhere of um spirits can just inhabit things from the natural world but um particularly with stones if you want a spirit to move into it, it shouldn't have any sharp jagged edges so it would have to be really a round stone really it should have just been called the pebble you know because that's really what it is it's just find a pebble and ask a spirit does it want to live in it um when we um, we look at these spirits they're really just thinking if you think of them as like an imp that's really the best sort of um mm. comparison so it's really just finding an imp in the woods or something and saying hey do you want to live in this stone i'll you know and it's almost like giving it um people almost describe it like a house but that's not kind of what it is it's more like you're giving it a physical anchor so that you can communicate with it and then you bring the stone into the house where you live so you're sharing your home with it so really you home it not in the stone but that's the tether point that you bring into your house that can live with you then and they look after you very very well um they bring wealth to your door you never have to ask them for money you shouldn't ask them for cash because they get quite upset because it implies they're not doing their job very well uh, you leave them alone and they will just do their thing um the name of the spirit though it derives from um sort of an origin of a term meaning um ruiner of walls because if you neglect them they start banging on the walls and then if you start ignoring them then they start like making the walls crack and crumble because it's like they protect the house so you start seeing the house ne get neglected if they're neglected um they don't often want a lot though um think of them like a pet you know mm -hmm. um sometimes they just want you to spend a little time with them you know talk with them and the very least you should do is say good morning and good night to one if you decide to bring one into your home well, you and likened it almost to like a familiar yeah it is it is very much like a familiar yeah this is something else that almost got um it almost it did get cut down in the book um, in the final edition i had a full-on story a personal story about it from when um my nan she got me the um the equivalent that what we have here in the uk we have a very similar tradition here in the northwest and um i have the sun it's actually right next to me here um and um yeah she took me into this occult shop and it was just basically um these stones all already had spirits in them and it was just a case of to see if one of them wanted to come home with me and i didn't think there was going to be one and there was like this little basket and it was set out so nice and in the end i just like had tipped everything out onto the table and i was like going through them and chucking them back in the basket like no 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 and then i just found this one and it was like, oh it's perfect and i just brought it home and i was so chuffed and then i had it in my pocket and it went through the washing machine and i was absolutely gutted and i was really like really apologetic to the spirit like oh no i will never let you go through the washing machine ever again i'm really really sorry and i felt really bad speaking uh, of banging I, on walls uh, that probably made a sound <laughs> I, it was actually very very forgiven I was, all good uh, <laughs> I, I just like have this image of like a little imp a little red imp with like studs covered all over it like very frustrated <laughs> getting pulled yeah very bad getting pulled out of the washing machine all sudsy and drippy 
<laughs> maybe they needed a bath. Um, there is obviously something that we see a lot, especially right now, um, the infamous lemon hex, um, which has been on TikTok for a while now. Um, lemons are used in a lot of traditions, but Aradia has an entire section on lender, uh, lemons and the conjurations of lemons and pins and different colored pins. And if you slip a certain pin in there, it's bad and um, <laughs> all of those things. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? So with the lemons, I think really this is a big thing about the fact that lemons are just so popular and really easily attainable in Southern Italy. It's just like the thing, like you can, you literally don't have to pay for the lemon. You could literally just pull it off a tree, you know? And I think when you look at a lot of folk magic, um, it's like Marshall was saying earlier, and um, things that are easily accessible. And when it's free and it's just there on your tree in your garden or in your neighbor's garden or whatever, and people just grab one, you know, because they need it. Literally, the only thing you need is some pins. And I think that really plays into the reason why it was a lemon, because it's easily accessible. And for the, for the blessing and cursing part, I think it's for the fact that it's that combination, particularly when it's used in cooking and food and just even like flavored drinks, it's either used to make things sweet or to add that sourness, it depends on your personal taste. I really love lemons. I actually find them quite sweet. So um, yeah, I'm like that person. You're like, if you get like one on the side of a drink or like in your drink, I'll always be the person who gets the lemon out after because I'm just like, oh, I love that. And then other people are like, oh, how can you eat that lemon? It's so sour. And I'm like, they're not, you know? So I think as well, it depends. Like if you see them as a souring thing, they're going to be quite bad. If you see them as quite sweet, then they're going to be quite of a, you know, a blessing thing. And I think that probably just blended a lot. Um, the thing with um, South Italy, in particular South Italians when they migrated to other countries, is a lot of sharing and collaboration and, um, you know, different areas have different takes on things, but they all sort of share and blend together and it weaves a whole. So you might have stayed off where some people said it was for blessing, some people said it was for cursing, and then oh, it's for both, so then how do you make the difference? And then it's like coloured pins, black headed pins, and it, it most likely just comes from these variations, because you get variations of everything, variations where you remove the evil eye, you know, all these types of things, they all have their own versions, people embellish, um, but it's always really simple stuff and a lot of kitchen stuff, you know? So um, I think that is the biggest thing, it's the accessibility. And then I think the reason it's so popular today is for that reason too. I think that's mm -hmm. why these things have always been popular because they're just quick, simple. There's not really much faff. You just get a lemon, you get some pins and then you're good to go, you know? So I think people really like that, just really quick, non-complicated magic. And you know, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Um, I think too, I wonder, you know, in the South of Italy, um, Calabria is, is obviously there, which at one point, that's where most of our citruses around the world were bred and come from. Uh, for those of you who don't know, lemon is not a naturally occurring fruit. It is a, um, it's been bred. It's a really old fruit, but it's, it was bred a long time ago from, um, uh, not limoncellos, uh, a different fruit. Anyways, another citrus fruit that's a little more tart and bitter. Um, but I think too, you know, that's also, it would have been very accessible for people. Um, squint, uh, with a little squint in the cock of the head, you know, it can look like a heart, um, it, like, a, like, a, like a human heart. 
Um, it, the squint in the cock of a head can also look like um, testes. It can look like uh, skin. You know, the outside looks like skin. And it's also this like idea of like, again, what you were saying with the evil eye, taking an object that's common to you that's also accessible because you're just going to throw it away. And you don't want to eat that lemon after you've, you know, cleansed somebody down with it. Uh, tossing it aside, but also I think you're right, it absolutely is, is very accessible. Where I'm at right now, there's probably like six or seven orange and lemon trees here and apples, it's crazy. Um, and I just think about, you know, being able to just go take one right off the tree. And that's, you know, that's where your magic is, you know, right outside your front door. And you know, oh, go ahead, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Um, I was just going to say, yeah, I think that's the thing. But you also made a really good point about, um, you know, um, the lemon and the association that can be made with testes. And when you curse men in Italy, it's always the thing that you go after, their fertility. Yeah. So it's the first thing that gets hexed. It's always the first place that gets attacked because as well, it's attacking the family line as well. You know, it's like people don't pull their punches when they curse people, you know, um, particularly in wider Europe, you know. Um, if, you know, if you're going after somebody, you go after them hard, you know, and I think if you're like, oh, I'm going to render you impotent or infertile and that's it, your line's done. It's like, you know, it's not just I'm coming for you. It's like I'm coming for everybody, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, and yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. I wanted to, I wanted to, to funny enough, read the, the lemon hex invocation for our listeners, because it was so fascinating. And it also shows the example of the, uh, the threatening as well, uh, and for people in Witch Talk, if you want to put up a lemon hex, I'm surprised I haven't seen this written out just yet because I've seen a lot of them. <laughs> Goddess Diana, I do beg of thee and with uplift, uplifted voice to thee I call that thou shall never have peace or good if thou will not uh, come to give me all thy aid. Tomorrow at the stroke of noon, I'll wait for thee bearing a cup of wine. There, there with a small eye lens and 13 pins I'll put within. Those which I put in shall be all black. And you, Diana, thou shalt call all of the devils of hell. Thou shalt send them as companions of the sun and all the fires of hell they will take and give strength unto the sun to make this wine boil so that the pens may be heated and with them I do fill the lemon here. A sign I pray, I pray to me within these, within three days, let one of these be shown to me, a roaring wind, a, a rattling rain or hail a clattering on the plain. Till one of these three signs you show, peace, Diana, thou shall not know. Both day and night, I will torment thee. <laughs> like that was hot. That is, I mean, one. Oh my God, what a threat! But two, I really, really like the way that many pieces of of Aradia Gospel of the Witches they kind of put not fail safes, but kind of like sign. Let me know you've heard me, whether it be a rain or or a roaring wind or or hail, and and I will do this. It's it's such a contract written into an invocation, and I find that so fascinating. And I'm surprised we don't use more of these. I, I agree, actually. I, I really love that element of, um, like you said, it's a contract. I mm -hmm. think when you look at the, um, particularly um, within modern traditional witchcraft, 
you know, we um, we draw heavily from trial records and those places, you know, folklore. And I think one of the things that I think often gets overlooked is um, that, you know, a lot of the um, the early archetype of the witch was based on things like making, a, you know, entering into the sacred compact. You know, you made contracts and agreements with these spirits and powers and they would give you these things. And um, I'm going to do a little side detour because um, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, I loved that series because I felt like they got so much right that was really subtle. And I want to just illustrate something. And if people haven't seen it, sorry for the spoilers, but you should have already seen it. For real. So, yeah. Um, so when the witches, they rebel against Lucifer, they trap him in a dungeon, they seal him in a room with magic, but they're still witches. Mm -hmm. And what I loved was in season three, when they start losing their powers, that only happens when they stop praying to him. And that's the moment they break the covenant. And when you look at the archetype of the witch throughout all the trials, you know, this is one thing that I always think people forget. When we look at things like um, a witch's bottle, that wasn't originally our magic. That was Puritan magic that was used against people like us because they were frightened of us. Puritans were allowed to do magic. It was secular magic. Everybody could do secular magic because you didn't have to leave the church to do it. When you enter into covenant with something that's other than God, you cannot be a Christian. So you have totally slammed the door on the church. But the contract is you get your power. I always just say it gives it an oomph. That is the deal that we make. We want to be the most powerful people. Going back to that earlier thing, the priest has his consecration on him and he can do harm to us with his benedictions. But through our contract, we don't just want a little bit of power. We want double the power. You know, we want to be the most powerful people in our community. We don't want just the every day magic that everybody has. We want it up here. And that's what happens on Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. They say they're losing their powers, but actually, even when they're at their weakest, they still have magic and they're still doing magic. It's just not the magic they could pull off before. And that's where they're at the disadvantage with the pagans who are praying to the green man who have power because they've got something behind them, giving them that extra authority and that extra oomph to their power. Then they enter into a new covenant with Hecate, they get all their power back and they're better than ever. And I think that's the thing that a lot of traditional witches, I think, miss when they say, we love the folklore, we love the trial records. The contract is always there and not many people build these contracts, these fail-safes, and it's an agreement, it's a back and forward. And um, I always say I worship, but I use worship in the really oldest sense of the word, which just means to show respect to a God. Mm -hmm. And to me, if I'm entering into a, a contract, a business relationship, a partnership, I'm going to be respectful. I'm asking this being to give me this power. But when you look at witchcraft, it's never like in that invocation. We're never almost saying, please, will you do this for us? you have the power we're almost saying you've given me this power now i'm calling on your name because you've given me that authority to do that and this is what my will is make it so that is how witches formulated their magic and i love that and it is that contract-based magic that idea that i now have the power 
And as long as I keep that respectful line of communication open, I still have that power. I'm not asking anybody in that relationship to do something for me. I'm saying by the power you've given me, this is what I am doing with my power that you have given me the right to use. And that's one of the things that I really love about the gospel because it really captures that nuance of we're not asking, but we're not almost telling either. We're just having the conversation. I need you to do this at noon. I will be there. That's the contract. And this is the will that I want working. It's not an ask, can you please? It's you be there at noon. I'll be there at noon. And this is what will be done. And I think people forget that when you say you worship, worship just literally means show respect to a deity. And if I'm asking a deity to show up at noon, which has got a slight tone to it, let's be honest, the least I can do is be slightly polite about it by almost saying, I'm grateful that you showed up. And you know, it's funny because I've, I've, I've said this before in the past uh, and, and I feel like I, I know better than, than what I have said years ago. I've heard a lot of people liken spells to a prayer. And I think what you just described right there is the, the base difference between a prayer and a spell. I am not asking. I am saying this is my will, this is my desire, and not by the power you've invested in me, but basically by, by the power of our contract and the regular relationship we have made, I am calling your power forth to make this happen and be my will, period. And that is one of the things that I think gets missed when a lot of times we we discuss um, witchcraft as a religion and as a belief system and as worship. I actually I actually don't use the word worship at all. I use the word venerate or or show respects to. Honestly, I think you possibly kind of sorta can interchange venerate and, and worship, but I think that that what you just said really breaks down the difference between. Um, proselytizing myself in front of and asking for and begging for versus, no, no, we've entered into a contract. I constantly show you respect. I constantly give you offerings. And when I call for your help, you will give it to me. That's what we have agreed upon. And that is why I have entered into this contract. And it's funny because one of the things that you mentioned, this kind of goes into our next question. You speak about the fact in this book that this is definitely a religion, not just a craft. And I'm curious, Funny enough, I, I asked, uh, could bits and pieces of this manuscript be used without the devotion to Diana? That, that's a really good point. I have a bit of a two-pronged answer to this. Um, but before that, though, of the last um, point that we was making uh, about the contract, this one thing that I loved about your recent post, you started a blog, which I really love that you've done that. And oh, you have you. your And you have your um, nine knot spell. Yes. and your own personal version of it. And I loved that you built it on the cosmology of exactly that. I'm not asking, I'm, I'm saying this is what I want. And you have those two sections in your notes where you, you put, you know, you put the safeguard, with, like you said, this contract and what your will is. And you make it that, you have your cosmology, which is everything that you've got your contract with. And I really loved that that is how you'd structured it. I thought we need more of this in traditional witchcraft conversations, this contract element. So I was really, really happy that you actually posted that. I was oh, really happy. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, for, for listeners who may not have known, I did start a blog. It's in the link tree in my bio. And um, for my first major blog post, I wrote about uh, uh, a recreation of an old historical 
spell that's kind of known as the the nine knot witches spell. And um, one of the things that I always had a problem with it is that it had no direction, no directive, and and it seemed to be just kind of like this pretty chant. And I've and I wanted to give it a sort of a, a, a an aim, uh, an impetus behind it, and I wanted to create something that would kind of within those nine knots hold all aspects of the spell so if you haven't read it yet go check it out I think you should obviously other people like it which I'm so grateful for you even mentioning that because uh the fact that you you understood that in my blog means that my message got out there exactly as I intended so thank you I appreciate that oh you're welcome I'm sorry if you could hear all the fireworks going off. There was just a moment of fireworks. I don't know if you picked up, but I did warn you. It's no, I didn't on. hear. I didn't hear a thing. Don't worry about it. Good. Um, so yeah. Um, sorry. What was the new question? I, I distracted us. No, no, that's fine. I asked. Uh, um, uh, could you use bits and pieces of the Aradian Rod- manuscript <laughs> without like complete devotion to Diana? Um, so yeah. So it was my two pronged answer. I remember now. Yes. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Yes and no. I'm going to say if you want to take inspiration, which was my hope for the back part of the book, to really mm-hmm. inspire people to adopt and weave in those elements. Because like I said, the gospel and Aradia is for all witches. There's no point in it where it says this is only if you're Italian. It's only if you're of Italian descent. It says if you're a witch. So it's it's yours, you know. So I always think if you own something and it's yours, it's up to you what you do with it. So if you want to pull elements and make it your own, do so because it's already yours to do. The moment you're a witch, everything in that gospel is yours. Um, and I would argue even culturally it's yours because, like I said, it, nowhere does it say you have to be Italian. It just says you have to be a witch. And so as long as you're a witch, we have our own culture within our community. I think anything in there is for everybody to use. It's your power. It's your contract, like we've just been talking about. So, yeah, absolutely. Whatever works for you, make it work. The other side of that is I'm mindful of the word religion. Mm. And the word was given to us by the Romans so you know like um you get like those um little chats i don't know what they're called but you know like where you like get a question and then it goes like yes no and then it guides you down onto a new section yeah thank you yeah so you get one of those right so if, if you had spirituality at the top and then the question was is your spirituality rational if you said yes then the word they assigned to that was religion. And if it was no, it was superstition. Superstition was those things I repeat and I don't know why I'm doing them. And religion was the the spiritual things that I do and I fully understand why I'm doing it and the methodology behind it, the rationale. So within, does it have to be religious? Within that context, I would say, yes, if you're gonna form a contract, you should understand why you're creating that contract, what the terms and conditions are. But I in no way view religion to be dogma because Mm. you get religions that have no deities. They're about the philosopher. And I think if you look at all religions and what makes them a religion, the only thing every one of them has in common is they have a philosopher with an understanding behind them. So that's why you have religions with no deities. Um, but they're still religions because they just have a rationale to why somebody has that as part of the spirituality. So 
for that reason, I would say yes. And then also, if you wanted to adopt it wholesale, then Diana has to be there. Mm-hmm. But does it have to be dogmatic? No, because that's literally the message is the church has come with its dogma and forcing it on the witches and we're opposing it. So I think religious is in the sense of it makes sense. It has a rationale, yes. But dogmatic, absolutely not. And I'd even probably go as far as to say never because it's literally the antithesis of the entire message of the book. There is an interesting part of um, Aradia, the gospel, um, where it is laid out specifically how Diana, and and this is something that we see with uh, the iconography of the Madonna in almost every culture that Catholicism has touched. There is a uh, a masking that goes on or uh, a synchronization that goes on between local deities, um, local saints, as well as as the Madonna or uh, the Virgin Mary. Um, And there's obviously one in this book as well. Um, Can you talk about the act of binding the worship of Diana in the image of the Madonna? So when um, you start to think about the history of, I'll just say Italy, I mean, obviously it would have been called different things when it was just like times of the Romans, but um, we'll just call the entire... Yeah, yeah. Italy as a placeholder. (laughs) Yeah, but we'll just use it as a placeholder, exactly. Um, You had a lot of synchronization anywhere. It's if something was like something else, they were the same thing. There was sort of no two ways about it. And when um, you sort of see um, how Diana is represented, where she's, particularly in this gospel, she has a daughter but she's supposed to perpetually be a virgin. Then you get the Virgin Mary, who's perpetually a virgin, but she doesn't just have Jesus. If you look in the Bible, she has multiple children after, but she's still always this virgin. Then you have her as the mother of God. And then you have her as the mother of a different savior figure. Um, I think the syncretism come together really well because they have these... Um, these qualities that are so alike that I think when you start to transition from one belief to another, you just sort of grab on to what's familiar and they're so familiar as images. And then particularly you get the images of her where she stood on the moon and then Diana is always crowned by the moon. So I think there was just so many threads that tied them together that if you was looking for a way to still cling to an old belief in a new belief, then you would marry them together or bind them together and just use the image and it would be all things then it would be fine for the catholics it would be fine for your own personal beliefs and you would just sort of find that happy medium and i think that's really where it comes from um it just it, it was just there i think it's so apparent that it's had to sort of miss absolutely and you you also like you brought up with the church like for um, in history, I think the term illiteracy, especially when speaking about common people, um, I think I know I have qualms with it, and I know a lot of like some scholars who also have qualms with it too, um, because true illiteracy is, is kind of how that it's very like either you can read or you can't read, and one of them means you're dumb, um, and that's not true. So we we know that there is still even with what we would consider quote a sense of illiteracy. 
who these people are, who this person is. And I think too, when you understand a sense of, of um, people may have recognized both of these things simultaneously. And I think that's a, that's a really good um, point that you bring up. Can you tell us about the agenda? Yes, so um, this is the witch's sabbat, as according to Italy, um, the earliest reference off the top of my head is from 1354, I want to say, um, um, Jacopo Passavanti, and he really describes what happens um, there, and it's sort of not really your classic image, it's this idea of a really community best space where people go and they get readings done um sometimes there's like mediumship going on um people go for spell work um and it really is almost like um it's really the opposite of what you think of in that same time period as what the witches sabbath is described as literally everywhere else you have this image of a community gathering where everybody turns up. Um, it isn't this secret thing in the woods where you're running off with the devil and there's only like 13 of you. It's it's an event. It's a um, a place of selling your services. Um, it, it's a money-making space. It is almost a bit like a lot of the um, sort of pagan prides and events and things that we have today where people come they meet people they talk to them they might buy a book or a product it was pretty much described as that all that time ago and we're literally living it today so i i really like the imagery for that reason because it is so close to what we do we try and recreate the past a lot um uh, particularly like with the flying ointments and things like that but then we have this, which was described as something that we literally do right now. And I think a lot of people probably, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, they almost sort of recognize that they've got that tie to the past because it's so commonplace for us today. We don't think of it as being this older witch tradition, but it's very much that, except for the part where you're dancing with demons. You know, we don't have that so much today, but... Um, other than that, it is literally like most of the events that we have today. And um, yeah, I really like that. That's also the only title I I um, played around with um, from the original title in the book because he had a spelling mistake in it because um, he put Treguenda and there is no such word as Treguenda. So this is one of the instances where I said it looks like he's copied it from dictation and he's probably guessed how you spell it. And he's put a letter in that would alter the pronunciation it's not even a word in italian so i just had to knock the u out of it um which i will just say as a little side note because i'm really big on this um on the point of cultural appropriation people from a culture can still appropriate their culture and i see people there's a few people and they sell classes on italian witchcraft and they say, oh, this comes from like my great, 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 great grandmother. And then they have things like this spelling mistake from this book in the thing. And I'm like, no Italian grandmother is ever going to be saying this word to ever. So I'm like, keep your money because these classes are super, super expensive. And it's just a rip off of my book, which is a lot cheaper. <laughs> so buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, I think that's a big thing as well, though. A lot of people really rip off. And that was something that at the Trigenda was accused as well. Con artists would go and pretend to be witches because it was such a profitable space. So mm. it wasn't this like secret gathering. It was this place where everybody knew and even the con artists were turning up. And just like today, we also have the appropriating con artists who turn up. So I always think as well at these places, just like we did in the past, check sources yeah i love when people tell on themselves <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh this reminds me of like a like a troll mark or uh, like a troll market or um like an underground uh mythical like what, what are where are these people getting about to they're having these like secret meetings where they go and sell off their services and then other people are also probably going in and you know requesting these services it's, it's uh the witch mercado that um it's that like I could only it's like diagon do. alley but if it was right. a festival <laughs> right and it, it always like hidden stuff um <laughs> and that's really fascinating so i'm curious about this because this really stood out to me having finally gotten through the entire text itself i noticed there does seem to be an imbalance of of power here between diana and her brother lucifer slash apollo uh, between the suggested chase and the chapter at the very end, specifically where you talk about Apollo, uh, uh, the witch's god, he seems to get very little fanfare, uh, very little discussion in general. There is obviously different points where he's brought up and everything, but I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit more about your analysis of this dynamic? So I think a lot of this comes again from the culture of the persecution and how witchcraft was perceived. Mm -hmm. um, so um, like I said, like the Dianara before, like the prophetesses, they're the ones possessed by the spirit of Diana. They're described as the followers of Diana. So the, the male principle doesn't really enter into even the folklore until quite a bit later. The church starts to change its narrative. I think they hit a point where they, first they're calling it the old religion. So witchcraft, is a religion which then implies there's an alternative religion from the same people who say there is only one religion mm. they then like there's this then they describe her as um, the last goddess of the pagans which then affirms her divinity but they only believe in one god so i think they realized very quick well not very quickly actually lasted a very long time that they had really affirmed a completely different religion that didn't require paying money to the church didn't require bowing down, didn't require groveling. I don't know if you've ever sat through a mass. I sat through a mass once um, because I was attending a burial, um, you know, after someone had uh, been cremated and we were asked, oh, you know, like come for just the end of mass and then we'll go outside and think. So I was obviously there for uh, the burial of that person. And I'm sat at the back because if I have to ever go to a church, I sit on the very back pew, even if there's loads of empty ones before me, I'm always at the very back. I don't say anything. I stand up when people stand up. I sit down when people sit down. I never sing. I never say anything. I just sit there with my mouth shut. But when they called the people up to mass, there was this element and it really bothered me in a way. I think because I've, I've never experienced that before. And I found it really bizarre that they, they read this passage from the Bible and they describe um, even a dog, it's something on the lines of this, even a, a dog deserves scraps from the master's table. Then they call you up to an altar that's basically a table with bread and wine on it, and you get down on your hands and knees, and then you're fed. And I'm like, 
they're literally just saying to you, you're a dog, now come up here and get fed by the person who's, who's in that moment supposed to be the embodiment of Jesus Christ. So it's like, you're Jesus's dog. And I find it really weird. But then you've got this church that teaches this, but then they say, oh, you can be wild and free and you can dance naked in the woods and you get all this power and you can do whatever you want and you don't have to ask, you can command. And I think that was the biggest mistake. When they realized that, they started to shift the narrative. Um, so then it becomes, well, Diana's really the devil and she's just he's just taking this form and he's deceiving you and it's really the devil. They try and slowly pull it back into their worldview. So it's like, even if you go into this other thing, it's still part of our beliefs. You're just going in the wrong direction and you need bringing back to the church. So they start to shift the narrative. It's not a different religion. It's the same religion and you're just on the wrong side. Then they start to shift it. Then the devil becomes a man. And it's never the man that they teach. It's never this hot guy who's going to lure you away. It's this bestial creature that's like very animalistic. It's not, and, and that's obviously where we get the introduction of the folkloric devil or the witch's devil. It's not mm. the devil of their church. It looks nothing like the devil that they describe, which we'd probably much prefer. But we get this, this weird sort of conglomerate of different animals old horny <laughs> yeah exactly and then the the narrative starts to shift but then the goddess figure is still always there but then she's sort of like sat on a throne next to him so i think really the the imbalance of power probably comes from the fact that in the south um, of italy the more dominant word isn't strega it's these ones that really connect back to diana so it really roots back to when there wasn't even a male figure there and then where you get the blending in of accepting aspects of catholicism just because it's part of your culture hmm. that then tells you there has to be this almost luciferian being present but he almost doesn't fit into the, the folkloric narrative. So I think that's probably the main reason why it's sort of there, but it's not there because really he wasn't there at the beginning and he isn't in the language. And when you're speaking that language and that's your word for witch, then the only thing you have there is the feminine. And you're just trying to reconcile a teaching that's been pushed onto you that actually this guy has to be there somewhere. So I think that's where the biggest imbalance comes from. It's just because I don't think people really know where does he fit if you're not Catholic. That makes a lot of sense, especially with replacing the name of Apollo with Lucifer. And then there's even a passage where it talks about how um, Lucifer repented from his sins. And I was like, that doesn't seem to fit anywhere in this cosmology. <laughs> No, it really doesn't. I think it's also this idea of where I said before about people trying to hedge the bets, you know, where they almost don't want to, they, they've been brought up with it and then they leave it, but then they, they sort of got a bit of that Catholic guilt. So mm -hmm. I think it's the idea of, oh, well, he's been redeemed. You know, it's like, he's accepted Jesus. You know, I think it's like this thing. So, so he's okay now. I think that's the, the thing. I think it's almost this, the devil's okay now. Like I can work with him because he's, he's, reformed and he's almost made more like a saint again and saints are fine if you're catholic so it's he's just a new saint now and i think that's really it it's almost like this weird yeah and i find that really bizarre as i i'm sure i commented in the book i don't remember if it got kept in the book but i almost said like 
why would this pagan deity be repentant of a, another deity? It makes no sense. But I think that's where it ultimately comes from. I think it's this trying to almost not be too guilty about not sort of being Catholic. I think that's really the thing. I think a lot of this pressure, particularly when the book came out as well, um, in the 1800s, I don't think there was that much freedom to be exploring other spiritualities like there is today. So you had this weird reconciling of, well, we want to embrace these ideas, mm. but we, we're not sure how that fits with our, our sort of cultural upbringing. In the back of the book, you provided um, some sample spells that extrapolated from the gospel's approach uh, dedication in an unconventional way. Um, tell us more about that. So really what I wanted to do was say, well, if you've read the book and you really like it, and I really did conclude that this is a book for everyone, if you're a witch, it's for you to do with whatever you want to do with it and take from it whatever you want to take from it. But then I thought, well, what if people are reading it and like some people do, they go, well, the book says, and I really didn't want people to be stuck on that. And I wanted them to see that if you read the myth, but you don't necessarily believe the myth, you can still take the message of what it's conveying with you. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to almost say like, well, then here's a spell, but it's not a spell that's described in the book, but it draws on elements of things that are described in the book. And like one of them, I made like a healing puppet, but then it's like, if you want to make a puppet for something else, that's still just make a puppet. It's still that hint of, it's fine to make a puppet here. And then I did like a, a witch's bottle spell. And it's like, but you can change what's in it, you know, change the intention. But I was just trying to show that you can apply this while applying other techniques. And these are just ideas, they're beginner points, the points to ponder. And when people see like, oh, I see where the from the gospel that came from, but also other things it's been blended with. I was hoping it would inspire people to just go, oh, well, then I can take these other things and, you know, blend them in and do what I want with them. And it's like the questions that you had earlier about, you know, do you have to sort of take the religion wholesale or can you just take the bits and pieces? And really that was the intent of the back section. It was take the bits and pieces and make it yours. And here's some ways it could be done but I also kept it super simple because I wanted people to dress it up themselves so it's like here's really simple steps make it more elaborate if you want to keep it really simple change a component do what you want with it it's yours um the dedication part I didn't want to put a ritual in there because as I say in there I hate books that have a prescribed set ritual in there particularly when it comes when it for a book that is non-dogmatic I didn't want to this is the way you do a ritual for dedication to me if you're dedicated and again it goes back to the contract that we was talking about earlier it'll be your terms and conditions it will be what works for you and how it applies to you so I wanted people to really think about dedication as well what are you dedicating to what are you happy to sign on for and, and how much or do you even not want to sign on to it at all which is also valid and okay the questions to ask yourself come to with to a conclusion with your own answers and then that's your answer and I really didn't want to conclude that book with I have the answer because I wrote the book I want it to be I've given you the book in its raw response so you can understand it I know that you understand it what's your understanding and then do that I'm really all for 
never telling people what to do. I'll tell them what I do and how I found things to work. But I'm not all people and I'm not living other people's lives. I'm not living their exact way of being a witch. I can only give my pointers, advice, tips of my own personal experiences, but run with it. Take what you want, leave what you don't want and make it work for you. And I'm very much about the self-empowerment thing. And particularly when you're writing a book, which is about take the power back. I didn't want to conclude it with, I'm going to tell you how you have to do this. Mm -hmm. I'm just giving you the tools, use the tools. I really liked that a lot. I myself wrote my own personal dedication. And it's it's funny you mention that because there are a lot of books that will have a prescribed dedication or self-initiation within them. And what I found myself doing was taking a little bit from this one, a little bit from this one, rewriting this one and, and to fit my own personal cosmology. And it was very personal. And it's one of those that I don't think necessarily unless you were following my exact, you know, belief system or praxis, it wouldn't necessarily make sense to just about everyone else. So um, when I read that section, I was just like, ooh, I want to ask you about that. And, and it's funny because I think one of my favorite spells that was in this book really kind of, it was one of those that was extremely adaptable. It was extremely, you could totally remove this from the text and do it within your own cosmology. And that was the, um, the mal the ojo, the, the removing of the evil eye with the, the couple of drops of, of olive oil and the pins and the water. And then it even goes so far to show how you could take it outside. And before you dump it, you could make a choice. You could just disperse it on back into the earth and have it absorbed and just removed from you and taken away, or you could send it to someone else, which I thought was quite tricky and definitely gave me the nice visage of the witch. I appreciated that a lot. <laughs> That's that element of sending things by the roads is something which comes from here, but it's something that I grew up with. So it was very much something that I thought, I have to put that option in there. I don't want people to think of this sterile-like, because you do see some really sterile versions of removing the evil eye, where it's mm -hmm. like, say three Hail Marys, um, pray to Archangel Michael and all this. And it's like, there is a um, sort of, it's like a folk charm. And I say it's like the staple charm for removing the evil eye. Mm -hmm. um, I actually have it on my YouTube channel um, where I'm I'm in my local graveyard and I'm just telling people how to say it because for me it's the only thing you actually really need culturally to remove the evil eye. Anything else is your own personal choice and whether you want to send it on somebody else, send it here, send it there. I think it's always great to personalize those things but I didn't include my personal one in the back. I did think about it but I, because of the fact that I wanted this to be, a, like you said, pull from the book, find your own way. I didn't want to then be like, oh, this is what I do, because I didn't want people to almost feel like, um, not necessarily an obligation, but almost like, oh, this is the authentic way of doing it, because everybody literally has their own version. So I really wanted to just encourage people to just find their own version. I loved it. And I, I liked how simple it was. I liked how anyone could read this and be able to recreate a version of it for themselves. So before we sign out, do you have any uh, uh, final words of advice or things you'd like to say to our listeners about your book, about Aradia, about, about upcoming works? Um, yeah, so um, I, I think we've talked a lot about Aradia. I think that's the biggest plug I've ever done. I'm super quiet and private. So this is like really strange and bizarre for me, but I'm so grateful to be here and that you 
invited me on. You've both been great hosts. You've made me feel very welcome, very comfortable. So first, thank you for that. Um, the, the upcoming book I have is um, Closer to Home. It's about um, the UK, specifically how the culture, I touched on this really early in the conversation that we had where I said certain terms and things come from my neck of the woods that I know they've spread out and they're very popular in witchcraft today but probably wouldn't know that it comes from the northwest mm. so I've looked at certain elements in my upcoming book which is called witchcraft unchained the whole reason my instagram account is called witchcraft unchained is just because I wanted to reserve this title for myself and I thought <laughs> no one can steal it if that's associated to me um, but I really wanted to look at things that are often discussed in books but where we don't look at the back history behind it so mm. i always think history must inform something it is a foundation if you know where something comes from you can be as creative as you like and so i wanted to really go well, where's the cultural nuances that make this thing and again not in a way of saying you have to do it this way just this is where it comes from and it might give you food for thought on how to adapt it for yourself so that's really the second book but it's looking at the sort of where elements of British witchcraft and um, things that came from British culture have sort of spread around the world and almost just giving people that cultural lens that they wouldn't have if they didn't live here. So that's the second book. It's out next year. I'm not, I'm not sure when, but everything's moving very fast. So the, the final edits are done in two weeks on my publisher's end. And um, the work, they started working on the cover illustration yesterday and the internal illustrations started last week. So everything's moving very quick. I know it's sometime next year. I don't know when it's timetabled for, but there will be a post when that goes out. And I'm super excited for people reading this one, not because um, there was any problem with my first book, but because I was basing it on looking at somebody else's work. Mm -hmm. And this one's purely my own idea. I'm really excited just to see what people think of it. Even if people hate it, I want to know that they hate it. You know, I just want those conversations. Like, what do you think of my standalone work that's original completely and no one's ever seen before? So that's um, the book. And then if you want to find me online, I don't use Facebook too much. So if you send me friend requests there, I might take ages to reply to them. The best places to get me are on Twitter and on Instagram. On Instagram, as I said, I'm Witchcraft Unchained. And on Twitter, I'm Craig Spencer 90 with capital C, capital S in my name. It is case sensitive. Don't follow the other Craig Spencer who stole the handle. Um, if you find either of my um, accounts, either on Twitter or on Instagram, I have a link tree in my bio, which will take you to the other one. And it also takes you to my YouTube channel. It only has a few videos on there at the moment because I scrapped all the old ones because they had terrible audio and thought I'll just make them again. Um, but there's only eight videos on there right now and I'm planning on making more, but when they get uploaded, I'm not too sure because I'm also working on book three and four because I, when I get bored with one, I'm jumping on the other book. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's taking me a bit of time fitting things into schedule, but I'm definitely going to be creating more content soon. So um, yeah, that's it. If you want to follow me, please do. I follow back. So Yeah. I love that. It's so funny you say that because literally I was thinking about like, uh, I was in the process of writing a, a blog for two weeks from now because I already have the next one written. And then I was like, Marshall, 
you have a book that you're trying to publish next year, start by finishing that before you get two weeks ahead of your blog. That's not going to actually <laughs> be anything other than fun. I 100% <laughs> understand not, what that can feel like. You're not an author unless you put off writing your book. If you sit and you just write your book, you're not an author. A true author will find reason to not go near that book for oh dear gosh. life. For days. So, yeah, exactly. So, so you know, you're in the best company for writing your book that way because I think it's like most of us do it. You've been listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I'm Marshall, the Witch of Southern Light. You can find me on... Uh, TikTok and Instagram at Witch of Southern Light. You can find me on Twitter at MarshallWSL. If you check any of the uh, uh, platforms of mine for the link to my bio, you can see my Redbubble page for merch. You can see my Patreon, the Southern Bramble Patreon. And now you can also find my blog as well. And I'm Austin Bain X Bramble on Instagram and Twitter and my website, uh, Bain X Bramble com where I have some writing and also uh, mystical womanly wares. Craig, thank you so, so much for being here with us today. And it was really, really exciting for me to get to know you. I didn't know you before. And I'm super excited about the work you've put out. So thank you so much. No, thank you both. As you all know, our show is a Patreon-supported podcast, and I'd like to take a moment to thank our Tier 3 supporters for supporting our show. Should I say support one more time? I think I should. Support. Let's start with Johnny, Nathan, Jennifer, Cindy, Giles, Jennifer, V, Keith, Jens, Adity, or Aditi. I'm not sure, so I'll say both. Hey, Pamela, the Lady Ghost, Seashaw, and of course, the indubitable, Anastasia Beaverhausen. We truly couldn't do the show without you. Thank you so much for your support. Mm-hmm.